Welcome to Brandon Devat. Uh, today we are joined by Professor Rob Sparrow, who is based at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Rob specializes in the ethics of new technologies. Uh, Rob, would you like to start with a thought experiment? All right. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is the moral status of artificial uh, intelligences. And you can find a lot of people who don't have any problems with the idea that there might be intelligent machines and think perhaps that in the not too distant future, we will encounter intelligent machines. And I like to ask, um, you know, what would, what would it be like if that were true? And in particular, do these people really believe what they say? And so the way I think about that is to imagine a situation where someone tells you uh, that your mobile phone has a sentient artificial intelligence in it. It's like the next generation of Siri. It can pass the cheering test. It can read you poetry. It can converse naturally. And people will say, look, in this little box you have, there is a sentience, there is a mind. And in a, you know, a moment of frustration, you throw that in the bath and you fry it completely. It's not waterproof and that mind, that entity is completely destroyed when you throw it in the bath. And the question I like to ask then is, would you convict that person of murder? And I, I call this the Turing triage test. Uh, it's a modelled on the Turing test, uh, the original Turing test, which was supposed to help us uh, answer the question, when can machines think? And the answer was when they can uh, converse with us in such a way that we can't tell that they're not human. And I, I think we should approach the question, when will machines have moral standing? When will they uh, be the sorts of things that we owe duties to when we would convict someone of murder uh, when they destroyed uh, what is purportedly a sentient machine. And then I think actually it's very hard to believe that. It's very hard to believe uh, that someone should be, for instance, crippled by guilt and remorse uh, for destroying this thing that looks like your mobile phone. So I wonder how much work is being done in the thought experiment by the fact that it looks like a mobile phone. So it comes in a box and it's yay big and it's this black cube. Um, I wonder whether, um, or rectangular, oblong, I'm not sure what shape a phone is. Um, I, wonder, I wonder whether the appearance of the AI might sway our intuitions. So if the AI suddenly was shaped like a person instead of like a, uh, like a cell phone, and that AI was able to maybe move the way humans do, um, appear the way humans do, maybe had facial expressions, would that shift our intuitions? So I, I do think appearance matters here. And indeed, one of the things that I've defended in my own work is that embodiment matters, that uh, this idea that you know, there, there might be a mind that was only contingently embodied, uh, for instance. And when people start talking about sentient machines, if you model them as software, then presumably you can port that sentience around, you can copy it, take it off your mobile phone, put it on your desktop uh, machine, you can move it from the robot dog into the robot fish or whatever it is. Uh, I think that notion of a mind that isn't deeply connected to a body 
with a certain sort of appearance and a certain sort of animation, uh, I think that's um, implausible and deeply problematic. So the first thing I'd say is, yes, appearance is doing work here, but I'd want to deny that this was mere appearance. I think it is appropriate that our uh, moral attitudes towards other beings uh, are analysed at a level of a relationship between faces and between, uh, between surfaces. And in the context of a lived experience where, yes, appearance does matter. Uh, so it's important to... Uh, the original formulation of the Turing triage test that these machines are sort of um, blank or, you know, uh, I think in the original written paper, I imagine something that looked like a filing cabinet. And its lack of uh, ability to engage our emotions and our moral responses is actually part of what makes it unimaginable, it seems to me, that we might take seriously the idea that someone would be racked with remorse, for instance, you know, haunted by the death of this entity in the way that uh, it's conceivable that someone who has killed someone is haunted by that for the rest of their life. It's not that I don't think someone might tell you that they're haunted by the fact that they destroyed their mobile phone or that they, you know, uh, killed this thing that looked like a filing cabinet, it's that we, I, I think we struggle to take that seriously. And indeed, we don't really know how to test whether someone is being serious. If they say, look, you know, I've never been able to get over the fact that I did that when I was 18 and my, it shaped my whole life. It, it seems to me that if someone said that about something that had this kind of... Um, uh, you know, oblong, emotionless uh, surface that we wouldn't know whether they were being serious uh, or not. Now, I do think it matters, um, you know, because I've said appearance matters, the obvious counter example to make is the sort of animate android, is the Blade Runner uh, style replicant. And I'm, I've never been entirely sure. It seems to me there's a number of different... Um, arguments that we need to be thinking about here. One is just a scepticism about the ability of anything that we can in fact build or are likely to be able to build, to have the, the sort of bodily presence and fluidity in motion uh, that even animals um, have when they move um, amongst us. So people are very quick to pick up when something is you know, a robot or uh, as opposed to a real animal uh, or a real person. Uh, and then there's also um, a thought about the manufactured nature of entities like that and a thought about the importance of something being flesh and blood and having a shared uh, mortality. So there's a set of intuitions about our creatureliness, I guess, about, about what it is to be a mortal creature and the connection between that notion and our moral notions that seem to me to place the idea that these disembodied minds, even if they were contingently embodied in something that was like a kind of Blade Runner style uh, replicant, 
that those things could achieve moral standing. So here's a different way of thinking about it. It might be that you've rigged the experiments in a way that's unfair, that people aren't going to take the view that you've committed the act of murder, but they might think that you've done something gravely immoral when you destroy AI. So let's imagine that I've got the last remaining copies of Isaac Newton's work and I set them alight or I burn the Mona Lisa uh, or just destroy the Sphinx. Now, none of those objects have an immoral life, um, but we think that you've done something immoral when you destroy them. So we could imagine that, uh, that someone had all the copies of Deep Blue and they destroyed them. We might think, well, maybe they didn't wrong Deep Blue, but they've done something immoral nonetheless. So Deep, Deep Blue is the machine that was first designed to, to play chess and beat a human being and beat Gary Kasparov. Now, Deep Blue really was able to beat a human being through raw computational power, as far as I understand it. But there's a new machine which learned how to play the game Go. And we might think that that machine has the, a uniqueness to it, that it is not just a system which uses brute power. It is much more human-like in the sense that through experience, it gains knowledge and becomes better and better and better. And if someone had to destroy that, we might think, well, they have destroyed something that was immensely valuable in the kind of lived experience way that you've alluded to earlier, which is this is something that was in the world, gained knowledge, um, gained a particular kind of intelligence far superior to that of human minds, and that the destruction of that was deeply immoral. I, I do think that if we were talking about, let's say, the destruction of a program like that on a machine, a particular machine, but that could be replicated on thousands of machines, well, if that machine disappeared, so what? Uh, we might think that there's no originalness to it in a way that we think that there is an original Mona Lisa. So destroying copies of the Mona Lisa, we might think isn't a problem, but destroying the original is a problem. But if we only have one of this thing, then we might start to think it becomes more of a big deal and more immoral for us to destroy it. So um, certainly I think there's lots of different ways in which... Um, machines might have value and the issues that you're discussing here have actually been thrashed out fairly extensively uh, in the field of environmental uh, ethics and also uh, in the context of some arguments that I've been interested in about our relationships with robots that draw on what's called virtue ethics. So clearly we might think that artifacts, whether they're intelligent or not, have what's called intrinsic value and that might, i.e. they simply have a moral status that makes it wrong to destroy them, uh, not by virtue of being persons or ends in themselves in the Kantian sense, but uh, either because they have aesthetic properties. Uh, so they might be, you know, complex to the point of beautiful uh, that anyone would recognize that it was wrong to uh, destroy them. Uh, they might have uh, intrinsic value by virtue of a history, uh, for instance. So the first of something that uh, that's, um, you know, some important item, the first one we tend to think is more valuable uh, than the copies as you, uh, as you intimated there. 
we can, of course, worry about destroying things like that because of how other people are going to feel about it. I mean, it's like I burn your favourite tie and that upsets you. And in the same way, one reason not to destroy the Mona Lisa is it would upset a, a whole lot of people. That's not so much, you know, the value is not located in the object so much there as it is in people's attitudes uh, towards it. But there's actually another set of intuitions here that I think are interesting, which is what would it say about me were I to do that? What would it reveal about my character? And this is um, what I described earlier as an intuition from virtue ethics. Uh, so virtue ethics is a you know a tradition of ethical thought uh, going back to Aristotle, where rather than asking about uh, the ethics of particular actions, you are concerned with character or you are concerned with answering the question, what kind of person would do that or what what does a good human life look like? And you might think, for instance, that someone who destroyed uh, Deep Blue revealed themselves to have a certain sort of character deficit, that they were blind to a relevant feature of, of the world, um, that they um, maybe they were suffering from an insensitivity towards uh, beauty, or maybe they you know, were callous in their disregard for the emotions of other people. Uh, so one way that we can morally evaluate people's relationships with artificial intelligences or computers and robots is through this lens, what kind of person would do that? And you don't need to attribute, um, sort of, don't actually need to attribute intrinsic value to the machine to think that someone uh, who mistreats it in various ways is, or who behaves it towards it in ways that we would typically recognize as mistreatment, uh, that they demonstrate something about them themselves that we might morally evaluate. Something I'm quite curious about is we have kind of uh, at the beginning of our thoughts about this, we have these very strong intuitions about clear-cut categorical distinctions between humans and robots or between sentient uh, life forms and artificial life forms. So on the one hand, artificial life forms can be replicated. Uh, they can be cloned. It's interesting that Philip K. Dick called them replicators or replicants. Um, and, and then, and, you know, we have these other intuitions like mortality. Um, so, so AI can't die in the same way as humans can, or they're not as frail. Um, so we have, we have all these uh, categorical distinctions. Another one is appearance. So as you said, it seems like for AI, even if you were to dress them up in a replicant body, it would be near appearance. It looks like that appearance is, is they, they've kind of been copied into that body, but they could have been copied into a different, a different form. Um, whereas with humans, it seems like our appearance is quite uh, intrinsic to who we are. Um, people identify with their bodies. So, you know, when we start thinking about this, it seems like there's these categorical distinctions between these two classes of objects. Well, I don't want to call them objects, but humans and AI. Um, but, but I wonder whether upon further reflection, we start to break down those categorical distinctions. So for example, when it comes to uh, mortality, uh, there's some fantastic AI movies about um, 
AI that wants to become mortal. So Bicentennial Man is one of them, for example. So he says that in order to really become uh, fully sentient and really have moral status, he wants to um, have a, a lifespan. So he wants to have a, a defined lifespan and he, he changes his coding or he asks others to change his coding so that eventually he will die. And it's only upon his death that uh, the state awards him with that, 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 that evaluation as, as, as sentient. Um, and, then, and then similarly with the, other, with the other categorical distinctions, we can kind of start, start to f uh, chip away at that, that firm divide. So when it comes to uh, humans having a body that we identify with versus androids that have a body that's kind of uh, contingent, we can imagine constructing the android in such a way that their identity forms very closely, you know, with their body. Or humans can have body parts switched out. So we can imagine cyborgs, for example, um, that get that limb, get limbs or organs switched out. Um, and, and there it seems like humans are becoming less tied to their bodies and androids are becoming more tied to their bodies if we shift the, the experiment. So I wonder whether we can't collapse some of these distinctions and in doing so kind of undermine or chip away at the intuition that, that sentient beings and androids are so, or AI is so different. So I think there's, um, there's at least two different uh, traditions of, of thought that we need to be thinking about uh, here. I mean, one is actually a debate taking place within the AI community uh, about the relationship between having a body and having a life history and becoming intelligent or, or learning to move in the world. And certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in uh, the role of the body in um, our concepts, in forming our concepts, in um, enabling us to understand the world. Uh, one of the interesting things about the history of AI is that people used to think that the hard problems were the intellectual problems and it would be easy to make a robot that could move around the world and could see things, uh, but it would be hard to get one to play chess. And actually it turned out that a lot of the sort of purely cognitive tasks have fallen to the machines much earlier, but building a machine that can tell the difference between you and the pot plant behind you is actually quite hard. And it's only recently that machine vision has become good enough that, um, uh, you know, machines can actually categorize objects uh, reliably. Uh, still moving around in three dimensional space is, uh, is quite difficult. Uh, for machines to do. So there, there are some, uh, there's a tradition of thought within AI and robotics that actually does suggest that bodies matter and life history matters. And then at the other end of things, there are some deep questions here about how we think about the ethical and the extent to which it's possible for us to radically uh, revise the sorts of things that we say about each other and perhaps about sentient uh, machines. And, and there's a big um, influence here from uh, Peter Singer and the utilitarian tradition that, that has developed this very narrow account of personhood 
as a sort of rational self-consciousness that's aware of itself as persisting uh, through time. And, you know, one of the you know, progressive things about Singer has been pointing out, well, animals, uh, non-human animals have that kind of, of consciousness. But there are ways of extending that thought that seem to be much less plausible uh, because it makes the exist, it really makes the problem of other minds very profound. Because if you think that there's no connection between the body and the consciousness, then, you know, perhaps your couch, the couch behind you, perhaps it's got a mind and, you know, uh, perhaps the, the plants are, are, have minds. And if we start to think about the world where mind is not embedded and, and uh, not present in the world and not actually on the surfaces. I mean, Wittgenstein, uh, who is one of the kind of classic sources for uh, philosophy of mind, philosophy of mind and responding to the problem of other minds, uh, is fascinated by the way that we just um, see expression in each other's faces. And, and, and that, you know, he talks about it's not the case that I need to reason to the conclusion that you have a mind, but that uh, it makes, except in very special circumstances, it makes no sense to doubt it. You know, someone who wanders around a, a party and they walk up to each, each person and they pause for a moment and, you know, you say, what are you doing? You say, trying to work out whether this creature is, uh, is sentient that's not an example of a good philosopher. You know, it's not an example of someone who's taking care. It's someone who's an example of someone who's got like a, a cognitive deficit. Uh, so that, um, you know, this connection between appearance and reality and a connection between our moral statements, our moral claims, the way we th think about deep questions and our everyday language uh, seems to me uh, important. And, and so, yes, you can imagine situations where we radically revise uh, our language and it becomes possible uh, for us, you know, we think about these science fiction cases where, yes, you swap out every piece of my body and you still say, but I'm still in there. Part of what I think we should think about that is... Um, the language we're describing, the moral practices you're describing are no longer our moral practices <laughs> and it's no longer our intuitions. I suspect that we just lose sight of what it's plausible to say. Yeah, think about the role played by um, what's called critical concepts. Think about how we distinguish between someone reasoning well and reasoning badly, or, or how we know when to take someone seriously. Uh, how to know when taking, to take someone seriously is actually a really hard problem in philosophy, because you can find philosophers who will say anything. You know, and at one level, you know, maybe they're serious, but often if you push, it's very clear that these people couldn't live what it is uh, that they were saying. And the moment they leave the seminar room, you know, someone who defends the idea that it's okay to eat babies because they're not yet uh, aware of themselves as persisting through time. This is 
one of the classic sort of attacks on Peter Singer's idea of um, personhood or moral status being associated with having a sense of yourself persisting through time. Looks as though young infants don't have that. So people, you know, if you really push some of these consequential forces, they have to admit that if you could do it in secret, there would be nothing wrong with eating babies uh, because you wouldn't do any direct wrong to the baby. They would have no more scent, no more moral standing uh, than a, you know, than a rabbit or maybe, um, you know, any number of things that we're currently happy uh, to eat. And if you meet someone like that, you meet someone and they, and they are saying, look, I think it's okay to eat babies. How do you tell whether they're being serious? And if they are being serious, would that be evidence that they were wise? You know, think about philosophy as the love of wisdom. You know, and someone says, look, I'm a great philosopher. I think it's okay to eat babies. And you think, well, is that an example of love of wisdom? Again, my intuition at that point is actually what this person has um, shown is that they're not wise. They might be smart, but they've um, lost contact with a whole range of concepts and intuitions and um, ways we live in the world that enable us to make the distinction between wise and foolish uh, statements. So, I, I mean, I, I do think there are some hard questions when you start to think about, for instance, people who are so badly disfigured by burns that they, they, you know, they become inexpressive in the way that I've described as being a problem for machines. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's significant here that, um, you know, one of the classic expressions of racism is they all look the same to me. You know, that, that, that's almost like a sort of paradigmatic example of racism, this idea that you can't tell the difference between people. Um, I think there's something uh, revealing in that because it shows the connection between individuality, you know, and uh, moral status, that what makes it racist is the idea that people of a particular appearance are replaceable. <laughs> Uh, that, you know, because they all look the same to me, I can't take them seriously. Uh, so again, I, I think that tells us that having a body, having a face, having a presence in the world is not a shallow feature of what it is, what, uh, what it is to be human or to have moral, moral standing. And so while I think we can yet, we can start to sort of consider cases at the margins. If we lose sight of that connection, uh, I suspect our thinking becomes completely unmoored and we become incapable of reasoning well. So let me give you uh, another sci-fi case. So there's an episode of Black Mirror called Be Right Back. And the premise is that uh, this woman loses her husband in a car accident, he dies. And uh, she's in this deep mourning process and she gets an email from a tech company that say, would you like to speak to your husband? Um, what we've done is mine through all of his uh, social media posts and we have a simulation where you can type to him and it'll feel like it's him. And she says, okay. And she types and she feels this connection and it feels like writing to her husband. And the text is the sort of same kind of tone, same kind of spelling mistakes, same use of emojis. Um, and she's, she really feels like this is an important part of her morning process. And then they say to her, well, we have an upgrade. Um, 
we have enough video footage of him to know what his voice sounds like. So you can plug in this little thing in your ear and you can talk to him. And she does this and she walks through the forest and she has these conversations and she feels like she's on the phone with her husband. And again, this sort of deep sense of like, wow, I'm with this, this other being, you know, this who is my husband. And then they say, well, now we have the, the thing we really want to sell you, which is uh, we've gone through all the photos of him and all the videos of him and we've reconstructed a, a body and we can put the consciousness that you've been talking to in, in your earbud into this body. Now, the body is not made of flesh and blood. It's uh, made of, let's say, high-quality silicone, but very much feels like it. And in the episode, you, you are looking at an actor who looks like a human being. And so she gets this thing in the post. She puts it in the bathtub. It rehydrates. And this is someone who looks like her husband. And she feels a lot of the sense of connection that she had with her husband. But there's a problem. The problem is that it's her social media husband. In other words, all the nice stuff, all the nice photos are there. So there's this uncanny valley problem where the kind of darker aspects of himself, which never really came out on social media, aren't present in this new being. And she finds it too unbearable to spend time in his presence and uh, locks him up basically in the attic. So I think there's a couple of things that are worth exploring from this little tale. The one is, has there been the survival of the husband? Can we say that really what you had was the consciousness of the husband, which has been transposed into another body. And really this is a human being just in a different form. The other one is to say, well, no, that the husband is dead and you have some other kind of being that's out there. At what point, if any, does it get any obligations? Um, and are there the limits on what the wife can do to this being? So is she doing something immoral when she locks him up in the attic? And you get the sense that, you know, he has a lot of the emotions that a human being would have and feels shame and isolation and torment. Um, there's, there's a point where she considers killing him, whether that would amount to murder. Uh, so I, I, wonder, I wonder if these sorts of cases where we get to play through the various iterations give us some sense of what it is that we can do to these uh, non-human beings. I think it's quite clear that people will uh, relate emotionally to uh, actually really quite um, uh, unsophisticated uh, machines. Uh, the, the sorts of arguments that, I, that interest me about um, whether or not we might feel haunted by remorse for killing one of these things. It's important to make the distinction between the empirical claim, no one will ever say that they feel haunted by remorse or that they feel bad about it. Uh, and a conceptual claim that we would struggle to understand uh, what someone meant or to evaluate the claim if someone said they were haunted by remorse for what they had done to an entity of the sort uh, that you, de you described. Uh, so, uh, like the Turing triage test, uh, I'm interested in what we might say about someone if they ran into a burning building to save uh, something like that. Um, so, I, I again, uh, in work that I believe is currently under consideration for publication at the moment, I'm interested in the case where, you know, you have three different people, one, uh, and they're each looking at their flat on fire. And one of them says, oh my God, my 
daughter is in that building and races into the building uh, to save their daughter. Uh, another says, oh my God, my, you know, my dog is inside there, races into the building to save their dog. And another says, oh my God, my robot dog <laughs> is in that uh, building and races into the building to save the robot dog. And I can imagine someone um, doing that. I mean, people will do all sorts of um, all, all sorts of things. I can imagine someone being so attached to their robot dog or to their kind of social media mind, Ursat's uh, husband, that they felt deeply about it. The question for me is, what would a third party say about each of those cases? And it seems to me, if someone doesn't run into at least feel the urge to run in to save their child, uh, you think that they're monstrous and that, you know, it's understandable that someone would put their life at risk to um, save their child. And indeed, it seems reprehensible if the thought doesn't occur to you. If you imagine saying, look, it's okay, I could get another child. Someone said that as they knew their child was, you know, burning to death. Uh, you would rightly be appalled, it, seemed, it, it seems to me. A real dog um, seems to me that we think that we would understand why someone would run into the burning building to save their real dog, but we also think that they shouldn't, that that was foolish. Uh, but if someone runs in to save their robot dog, it, it seems to me that we should actually uh, be surprised and that we, and we should also be uh, uh, quite judgmental about that, say, look, that, that's foolish. And if someone said, look, you can get another robot dog, <laughs> uh, that seems quite appropriate. Now, even if, you know, this is a kind of once-off, you know, bejeweled robot dog or whatever it is, or it's like the entity that you described that has this kind of social media history, this very detailed history, still seems to me that something like that is replaceable in a way that real human beings aren't. And for that reason, it seems to me that it's appropriate to respond differently to people who murder their real husband versus uh, kill an entity of the sort that you described. Now, having said that, we, again, we can still retreat to the virtue ethical arguments. And we can still, um, uh, you know, there, actually there might be a case where we think if someone isn't moved in the same way that if you're not moved by a particular piece of music or a particular film or piece of literature, we might say there's something wrong with you. You know, don't you see that, that you're in the presence of great beauty? We might well think of someone that didn't feel something for that entity you described, that that was puzzling and maybe even morally reprehensible. Uh, but if they went beyond that to the... Um, you know, the genuinely falling in love with it and sacrificing maybe their other relationships with real people for the sake of this ersatz person. Uh, at that point, I, I, I think it's appropriate to be um, judgmental in, in that context. I, I think we need to look not to empirical psychology, but to moralized reflection in these, in these contexts. Um, and so if something like that is, you know, has a certain sort of replaceability, uh, which, and the whole story that you've told, you know, that this was created out of social media feed suggests that you can do it again. 
then I think it's going to lack a certain kind of uh, moral status. Uh, I was just um, trying to remember, there is in fact an American transhumanist uh, religious organization that is advocating, uh, you can buy a product where they offer to um, uh, collate all of your social media postings uh, with the promise that in the future, someone will be able to emulate your consciousness and this will give you a form of uh, immortality. But um, um, you can find it online reason, uh, reasonably uh, easily. And uh, this is one of those points where I, I start to wonder about our ability to apply our critical concepts. When someone... Um, you know, thinks that that's, that's all there is to a person is the sum total of their data online. Uh, I've become puzzled about what it would mean to believe that seriously and what you're missing about life um, to not notice the real people in front of you and the, um, all the ways that we relate to each other physically uh, that are just missed out by that process. So I want to just have a quick follow-up question. So the one is, let's say, for example, that you had two versions of this husband that were popped out, okay? And uh, you had like a backup. And uh, the one was kept in the cupboard. And the other one, which now has an experience of, of the world, gains all these new unique experiences, you know, changes belief states, develops various emotional things. Um, do we think that there would be a difference between destroying that one and destroying, let's say, the fresh one out the box that we could order another one of? They may well have different uh, aesthetic properties in that, you know, the kind of watch that you've worn for years and has got, you know, there's the time where your daughter scratched it and there's the band that your wife gave you or, you know, that has a, there's a history in the objects uh, can make a difference, but that's not you know, a profound difference in, in moral status. But history does matter uh, in, these, in, in these contexts. Uh, I guess I would want to know more about what sorts of relationships are possible uh, on the basis of that history. Uh, I mean, this is one of the problems with thought experiments in philosophy. Uh, you know, there's philosophers spend a lot of time, you know, worrying about what they call zombies, which is someone who behaves just like me, but has no um, no conscious experience, no qualia. You know, is is um, and you know, you use can use this as a way of thinking through some problems in philosophy of mind. I'm a little bit skeptical about those kinds of thought experiments uh, and that we should take seriously the idea that I, despite apparently being quite animated, uh, that I don't, there's nothing going on uh, inside of me. And, and again, I would want to insist, look, someone for whom that is a genuine question, someone who encounters me in the street and wonders if there's anything going on in there, like anything at all, not just in the colloquial sense of well, I might be a bit, um, a bit stupid, but you know, whether, there's any, whether they're dealing with a kind of very complicated wooden dummy um, that is blowing in the wind in such a way as to replicate all of my movements. 
you know, yes, it's possible, but it's not something that we could, uh, that we should take seriously. I'm not even sure it's something that we could take seriously. So I, I just, there's a point in this conversation when someone says, look, there's this artificial entity, but it has all of the character and all of the expressive capacity and all of the mortality and lived experience uh, like other people do. What do you say about that? Um, and I mean, one thing I might say is, okay, at that stage, the question of its moral status has just disappeared. It's just obvious that it's the kind of thing uh, that we should take uh, we should take seriously. But if someone then simultaneously wants to insist, oh no, really, it's just made out of clockwork. And and you know that is one of the weird things about um, the whole AI program is it's very deeply committed uh, to the fact that the physical properties of the system uh, are irrelevant because the algorithm, you know, the Turing machine can be instantiated on anything. I mean, complex enough arrangement of matter. Uh, we can make universal computers out of dominoes or clockwork or, or, or water. So someone says, look, you know, maybe there's nothing inside of my head except arrangements of gears and pulleys and that, that's doing all the work. I just, you know, there comes a time where I think you're trying to say two things at once. You're trying to say, look, this creature is just like us in every way. You can't tell the difference, but also it's radically different. And on the inside, it's completely, completely different uh, nature. Uh, I sort of wonder whether or not we should take that story, uh, story seriously. So one quick response might be to say, no, there, there isn't a difference. You're just a bio machine. Uh, that you happen to be made of flesh and blood, and this thing happens to be made of silicone, but really, ultimately, you're both material objects. There's no uh, immaterial thing floating around inside of either of you. And uh, on that basis, we owe the same moral obligations to both of you. What's interesting there is, is what it means to say that someone is a machine, that living creatures are, are machines. Um, there's, this, you know, there's a sense in which that's solipsistic, um, you know, the choice here isn't between spirit and matter. It's between, uh, you know, the living and the dead or between, uh, you know, uh, artifacts and organisms. Uh, so I, I don't think, I mean, I mean, I am not, I, I don't believe that I have, you know, God's spirit within me or that there's some sort of, ethereal creature pulling my strings. Uh, but I, I, I deny vehemently that I am a machine in any relevant uh, sense. Someone who says, oh, well, look, you know, you're just a bio machine has just extended the word machine to include everything up to the point where their philosophical appoint, opponent is supposed to say, oh no, you know, I'm a creature of pure, I'm a Cartesian mind, a, a creature of uh, pure, pure spirit. I mean, the argument, the tradition that interests me is actually uh, deeply opposed to that, that framework, that there's my body and then there's my mind. You know, I, I think we live in the world through our bodies, but the machine metaphor is just inappropriate here. And 
you know, really when people start talking about human beings as computers, uh, it's like when we used to think that people were driven by the humors or the fluids or, you know, we talked about um, gears and clockwork. What's happened is that we've taken our way of speaking about our shiniest new gadget, which is a computer program, and insisted that we must be in its image and that somehow I must be a sophisticated uh, computer program. But I, I simply don't function, um, you know, uh, as an algorithm. There's no, you know, I haven't got a CPU. There's not um, a program running. There's not a sort of obvious state of my machine. None of that stuff, uh, I mean, people who are serious about machines have quite formal definitions of machines. Living creatures just don't fit those or, uh, for the moment. So yeah, I, I think that um, that's wordplay when people start saying, well, you know, it must be possible to make a conscious machine because we are just machines. Uh, I think it must be possible for matter to become conscious uh, because I think I'm just matter at, at some, in, in some sense. But I don't think that, that, that there are sentient entities we can conclude from that that it must be possible to replicate that with anything that we know how to build or are likely to know how to build and call a machine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forth an argument in defense. Um, of the AI as sentient, and it rests on this idea of the role of intuitions. Okay, so a lot of the discussion has been around what our intuitions would be in various cases. And the Turing test really is based on that idea. So we're saying, well, how do we know whether this is sentient, whether this creature is sentient? Well, we know because it would pass some sort of Turing test. It would satisfy our intuitions that it could be swapped out for a human without a change in moral status, or it could fulfill the role of a human or a sentient being in some way. Um, but I wonder whether there's not a mistake there. And the mistake is that these are our intuitions, right? So these are human intuitions. And it may be that we're quite deeply flawed. Now, I, I hate it when people present an argument like this to me in other areas of philosophy. So I hate it when people say in other ethics areas that um, intuitions don't really matter. We can't really use thought experiments. And I, and I always want to say to no, intuitions are very valuable. But maybe just in this area, because we're talking about sentience and about sentience being quite located to a species or to a set of species that we know about, you know, we'd want to say that humans are sentient. Maybe we'd want to say that octopuses are sentient, but, but the point is we, they're similar to us in very important ways. And so we seem to be quite speciest in our intuitions. So imagine we switch the thought experiment around a bit, right? So imagine long before humans existed, there were AIs, and there's very good reason to think this is true, um, not just in a thought experiment sense, but, but actually true. Um, so there have been some very interesting arguments put forward that if we were to contact uh, intelligent alien life, they wouldn't be organic, they would be AIs. Why? Because AIs are not mortal in the way um, humans are mortal, in the way biological matter is mortal, um, and so they're much more likely to persist through time. So there'd be a greater chance that we would contact AIs than humans, but let's just assume that is the case, right? That there's these super AIs living out there, and they happen upon Earth, right? And they, and they look at us, and they think, are these humans sentient? 
and they start prodding us, right? They start prodding and testing and they think, I don't know, they don't quite react the way AIs do. They don't move the way our drones do. Um, we could maybe condition them in such a way that uh, that they would, right? So we could like we could like inject them with 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 certain liquids and metals that would slow down their movements a bit because they they flurry around, they flourish much too much. Us androids, we move more methodically, and you know if we if we train the humans, we could do that. We could get them to move methodically, but even then, our intuitions are that you know that it, it's quite artificial the way we are changing these humans to to behave like androids, and so really, you know. At the end of the day, intuitions are what matter, and our uh, our intuitions as these AI overlords are that you know these creatures are not really sentient. Um, they, you know they they approximate; they're not bad, and we can train them, but they they're not there, right? If we switch the perspective like this, I think the the point of the thought experiment is just to limit the importance of intuitions in making these decisions and draw this distinction between what we intuit to be the case and what we know versus um, what is the case. So a, a distinction between metaphysics and epistemology. A lot of what's going on when people talk about AI and robotics is really reflection on what it means to be human. You know, because in fact, we, you know, robots actually aren't that interesting at the moment. And even our most sophisticated AIs uh, are clever at a, a few things and they're a long way from anything that we might um, think of as being sentient uh, or having a mind, you know, despite all the excitement about them and there's is reason to be excited. When people are talking about sentient machines, they are uh, talking, um, talking science fiction. I think that in some sense we have to do philosophy or we have to think critically from where we are and we, and the, the sort of the notion that we could be, wrong about so much you know we should that we could be uh, so i think for instance the story that you've told us is a story in which it becomes possible that any inanimate object actually is sentient it's just asleep you know that your house is um is actually one of these ai's that is visiting earth and is studying you in ways that you can't perceive um but at that point, I think we're in the realm of madness. Uh, so there's something about taking the thought experiment so far that we can't actually do philosophy properly anymore. So I, I want to resist the story that you've told on these kind of methodological uh, grounds. Uh, there is a sense in which what I'm defending here is a form of speciesism in, you know, that, that it seems to me uh, that this, this idea that we could develop an ethics for angels or that we could abstract away from everything that makes us human and take away all my human biases and reveal the creature of pure reason and let's, let's be that thing. Um, I, I just don't think we can, we can do it. So part of what is going on in this conversation is this question about um, what it is to do philosophy and what it is to do it well and when we can do it. So the situation you've described where we just take for granted that the machines are, are, sentient, are sentient and try to put ourselves in their place, 
uh, I just don't think that we can do it, you know, outside of fun stories. I mean, there's clearly some sense in which we can, I can understand what you're saying and I can say a little bit about it. What I'm resisting is the idea that I can um, think clearly and well through that uh, scenario. And, and I mean, I, I, I must admit, I have days where I don't believe any of this stuff as well. I'm, I'm also deeply, you know, um, inculcated, you know, trained in that tradition where you can make up any thought experiment, no matter how wild and expect to have a sensible conversation uh, about it. And it does make me that there's something, you know, conservative about the line that I'm running. There's something deeply conservative in the thought that, you know, appearance matters and our contingent evolved history matters. Clearly, in some sense, you know, maybe there's civilizations of AI out there, but I, I, I'm forced to this conclusion <laughs> by my, my sense that when people try to do the full science fiction thing, what we end up is not with good philosophy, but a parody of of, or a caricature uh, of philosophy. And that, that can be fun. And, you know, maybe we can get some stuff out, it, out of it. But if someone, you know, took those conclusions and, and said, okay, you know, doesn't matter whether you've got a body, you know, someone who took your thought experiment seriously and then said, walked around the room, looking at everything, studying it, trying to work out whether it was out of consciousness or not, I, I would just, uh, I, would, I resolve from the thought that that's a good example of, of what it is to, to do philosophy. So I think here's the difficulty. I think you've set up a, a false comparator. So in other words, to say, well, it's obviously absurd for us to assume that there's a consciousness in the house or the couch. But Jason's case, we have something that is sufficiently intelligent that it can make distinctions, it can assess things, it's, you know, it can reflect. Uh, and so you want to say, well, these we are talking about, you know, houses from outer space, and that's not really what he's talking about. Uh, what he's pointing out is the speciesist problem that you have. So if I say, well, we don't know anything to animals, we can torture them, we can kill them, it doesn't matter because they're furry or they're four-legged. Uh, you're a bit hold on. Why do those things have to do with anything? What matters is, can this thing experience pain? Can it suffer? You know, those are the sort of abstract qualities that we care about, and what might be going on when you say, well, this thing, yeah, fine, it can suffer, fine, it can reflect, but it's not made out of flesh and blood, so therefore we owe it nothing, uh, seems like the kind of, well, it's furry or, yeah, it's a different color to us, so it doesn't matter. And so I wonder if you've picked up on the wrong differentiator when you're working out what we owe these beings. And to jump in there, if you were to, if, if you were to resort to, well, we don't have to talk about the moral status of the object, but rather the moral status of the person committing the action. So we, you resort to virtue ethics. That seems to be the wrong reason why it's wrong to harm that being, right? It's not wrong because it shows up my character as poor. It's wrong because harming the being makes a being that is capable of suffering suffer. So I do think suffering is the right um, uh, the right thing to be concentrating uh, on. So um, how do we tell that something is suffering? Uh, now, 
I think the account you're developing, it's something to do with complexity. You know, presumably you want to resist the idea that your house might be suffering mutely. I, I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm giving that example deliberately as a kind of parody case, but it seems to me conceivable <laughs> on the account that you've described uh, that um, this, your house or any, take any object in your environment and it's just one of these, you know, sentient entities uh, that's gone to sleep or is just not playing with us at the moment. Because by disconnecting mind and body, by saying, look, appearance doesn't matter at all. And I, I get why people want to think that because, and I get the worry about speciesism. But once you say no, you know, any connection uh, to body, to surface, to animacy, to relationship. We've got to cast that all aside because, of course, it's theoretically possible that sentience might be, pre you know, sentience might be present in something that shares none of those features. Uh, then I'm at a loss as how we tell the difference between, you know, the kind of uh, the complicated clockwork machine and the thing that is genuinely suffering. In the original, uh, in, one, in a paper I wrote about killer robots, where I was also concerned with these questions about moral responsibility, I imagine someone, you know, introducing you to something that looks like a filing cabinet and they um, show you its pain, what they say are its pain indicators on its side. Okay, so it's got an LED you know, little bar of LEDs like your stereo system used to have. And they say, look, when that lights up, when it heads up towards number 10, this machine is suffering. And, you know, you kind of get on online and you press the big pink torture machine button and, and it's little LEDs shoot up and you think, oh my God, I'm torturing the machine. The machine is suffering. And then all of a sudden the engineer rushes back into the room and says, oh, sorry, that's the other machine actually it's the next row across. It's not the, you know, it's not the red LEDs. It's the green LEDs that are its, its pain indicators. What do you do at that point? You, you know, what do you respond to? How do you tell that this thing is really suffering? Now, now I'm a bit confused. Is it the red lights or the green lights that show its pain? Our experience of other creatures suffering, um, for the most part, is not like that. Even, you know, it's very obvious when people are suffering and when creatures are suffering. And there are special circumstances and there are limit, uh, limit cases. But the line that you're running risks disconnecting this stuff so radically that we've got nothing left to enable us to tell the difference between um, suffering and not suffering or, or between agony and um, mild discomfort. So, you know, I can build a machine that when it stubs its toe, it kind of screams and writhes and falls to the floor. And when you rip, rip its leg, leg off, it says, ow, you know, in a, mute, <laughs> in a mute voice. The problem of other minds has become so uh, profound here uh, that I just, I, I think we lose contact. You want to insist that this, this thing is suffering. How do you tell? What, 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 it seems to me, you say this machine is suffering when it does this. 
I say it's suffering when it does something else. No amount of the kind of thought experiment that you're describing is going to resolve that question. Uh, we simply can't get from behavior uh, to uh, our judgments. Well, I'm not sure that they're even judgments. Our responses to other people are not, re are not reasoned on the basis of descriptions of their behavior. They're immediate respon responses. Um, so it is, it's, a, it's quite a different way of, and again, this is coming out of a Wittgensteinian tradition. It's quite a different way of thinking about our relationship to other minds. But I, I really, I want to push back. You tell me these machines are sentient. They must be able to suffer. How do we recognize when they're suffering? And what do we do when we have the thought, well, oh, hang on, I might have got that wrong. I, I worry that you're dismissing the limit cases too quickly um, and the exceptions. So, for example, and this is, this is now not a thought experiment. These, these, these people do exist with locked-in syndrome. So people who are perfectly conscious, um, they are fully conscious, but they cannot move. And they cannot indicate their consciousness in any way. Um, they can't blink in a, you know, in a way that, that suggests they're conscious. And, and many, many, many doctors over decades have been fooled into thinking they're in comas. Um, they're alive, they're breathing, but they seem to be, you know, to use a derogatory term, they're vegetables. Okay. So, but we then later find out years and years later when they wake up that they were conscious the whole time and desperately trying to communicate. Now, imagine we ran exactly the same type of argument that you're running now at lock, locked in patients, right? So you say, there's no way we can know this thing's in pain, right? This thing being this vegetable, it's derogatory, right? So derogatory for, for, for a reason. Um, but it turns out that we've been derogatory unnecessarily and incorrectly so. This, this person is in pain. They hear all of the abuse that we hurl at them. They feel every prick on their skin. They're in agony when we torture them. Um, and the people who do this thinking that this person is just a vegetable are doing something abominable, but there would be no way to know at the time that they are. They could run exactly your argument, right? They could say, yeah, yeah. I mean, how could we possibly know? How could we know? And given that we can't know that this person's suffering, um, if we were to you know, take your case, for example, of the machine with the pain indicators on the side, swap it out with another machine with different pain indicators or say, oh no, we got the wrong side, the wrong lights as the pain indicators or the wrong machine as, as the conscious machine. We could swap them out without, without knowing. Um, we could swap out the lock-in case for, with a genuine coma case uh, and not know, right? We would have no idea whether this person's the person with lock-in syndrome or this is the person with, coma, with a coma. We would have no idea. And yet they, there is a fact of the matter. They are suffering. So I'm just not swayed by the view that if you can't tell, then it isn't there. And we can just kind of dismiss it from our thinking. Um, I want to say that there is a fact of the matter and that these thought experiments what they're doing is they're accessing our intuitions about cases where we can't know for sure, but we have an inkling, and that might be suggestive evidence. So you rightly describe this as a limit, uh, a limit case, and it is, it, it, it's, um, it's like the case of, um, you know, wondering whether the emotion that an actor 
uh, is evincing is, is, is genuine or not. Uh, so clearly there are those, those cases, but it's absolutely central to them that when we wake up, uh, sorry, when they wake up, when that person uh, uh, wakes up and says, actually, I felt it all and that was horrible. You know, when you did that surgery, I had those bed sores, uh, I was agony. At that point, we are immediately certain uh, we, it doesn't, we don't stop and say, well, hang on, maybe they weren't. Maybe now they're lying. Uh, so so the, the, the examples that we give of these, of these cases, where, which are sort of the cases of mere appearance or false cases, they're parasitic on the central cases where the question doesn't arise. Again, I, I want to push back and say, why don't, you know, you said they're breathing. <laughs> why don't we worry of corpses? You know, like, is it just that we've never seen a corpse get up and suddenly say, actually, I really hated those worms eating at me or that, you know, when the vultures tore my, tore my skin off, that, that really hurt. Is it just a kind of, you know, should we still be keeping that thought open? That, that even the dead have uh, experience, experiences. And you might, say, you might say, well, look, that's never, that's never happened. Uh, you know, or they, they don't have the right kind of behavior. But, but again, I wanna push back and say, if one insists that the reality and the appearance really can come apart in the way you describe that, that appearance is not a good guide uh, to reality here, and that there's always a further fact of the matter. You know, is this, is the pot plant behind you listening to this conversation? Well, I can't tell, and I don't think so, but there's a further fact of the matter. Once one starts thinking like that, then, you know, it's at least conceivable that the dead will rise and tell us that they were just suffering from some especially nasty version of of locked-in syndrome. And that thought is not a healthy thought. That, that way lies madness, that lies an inability uh, to reason about this stuff. Um, now, now, I'm aware the tradition that I'm drawing on here, uh, and I'm drawing heavily on the work of an Australian philosopher called Raymond Gaeta uh, and a group of Wittgenstein's former students and Wittgenstein's own work in the philosophical investigations, it's a really different way of thinking about this stuff. Uh, and I get the temptation to try to insist that scientific, you know, that, that what we do when we attribute mind to people is hypothesis testing. You know, that we have some sort of empirical hypothesis. We walk around the world forming a hypothesis about what's sentient uh, and what, what's not. The problem is that once we take that thought seriously, we can never get back. We can never get back to being, to being certain. And, and we, what to my mind looks like madness, someone who's seriously wondering which of the, you know, seemingly inanimate things in their world might have minds, they're doing it right. But the, I don't think that person is, is, reason, is reasoning well. So there's a, um, I'm aware how kind of counterintuitive this stuff uh, sounds and I'm, I'm myself worried about the speciesism and the, the seems to me in some ways deeply conservative. Uh, 
And you can always tell the scientific story where your pot plant does, you know, all of a sudden all its leaves start moving and it starts chattering and it starts engaging in this philosophical conversation. And at that point, we have to say, oh me, you know, actually was listening the whole time and clearly it is, uh, it is sentient. I don't worry about that. And I, I, that thought is not a useful thought. It's not something that I should be, uh, I should be worried about. So I think if we, have, if we pay attention to the way, the way we can tell the difference between good thinking and bad thinking, between foolishness and wisdom, we realize that we are much more limited in our um, ability to think radically in the way that you want to, want to describe. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's all, all we can do and we need to recognize, uh, we need to recognize that. And part of, I mean, to draw out the positive side of this, it seems to me to pass my original cheering triage test the machines have to do better than live on the internet, for instance. No amount of sophisticated teletype to me, um, you know, text appearing on a screen it is going to establish that these things have, have moral, moral status. They will need to live amongst us in, in a, um, like other people do. And if they can really do that, you know, if they can really become our friends and our, um, you know, our loved ones, and not just for people who are quirky and, uh, you know, same sort of people who might fall in love with their pair of shoes or, or whatever, but if they can, you know, if really we don't bat an eyelid when someone, you know, uh, is crushed by the death of their android partner, then that's the point at which I'm going to say, okay, these things are persons, these things have moral, uh, moral status. But building these black boxes that are good on the internet, uh, to my mind, that is always going to leave this gaping open question about whether those things really count or not.